one of the topics that um, I've really enjoyed studying in seminary, and which is compulsory every year that I've been there, has been um, church history. And I enjoy it because uh, I think for the same reason most people enjoy history. I could be wrong, I don't know. But when, when, I, when I learn it, I learn more about what we should and shouldn't do today. And I'm better able as well to put into context the issues and struggles that we have today. And one thing that I've learned from, uh, from that is that every generation has collective blind spots um, when it comes to their view of God. So today, unlike in other periods of um, history, people are not comfortable with the idea of a God who punishes wrongdoing, who has a standard of justice that never changes, or he's just completely and utterly holy. In fact, there are a number of Bible verses where when people meet God, they're terrified of him, you know, terrified. And your average punter on the street today, if you asked him or her, what do you think of the notion that God might terrify people, I'm sure they would react negatively. Maybe some of you are right now. Instead, today, we are much more comfortable with the characteristics of God, like his mercifulness, his loving kindness, his faithfulness, his graciousness, right? They ring nice to us. But the thing is, you see, I reckon we display a, a narrow understanding of the life of a follower of Jesus if we get excited by the more, shall we say, positive attributes of God, like mercy, grace, and love. Because these characteristics of God can be great. I mean, they are great. What are you talking about? They're great. To know that you're loved by God no matter what you've done, to experience his mercy when you've sinned against him for the millionth time, to know his graces in your life when you see the blessings in your life, when you know deep in your heart that you're saved and you won't pay the penalty for your sin, sins, these things are great. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think it's good to say that they're nice. Because they're not comfortable. Because it's, it's, it's not a one-way street. You can't receive huge amounts of grace from God and love and mercy and then not give it out to others. There is, a, there is a terrifying aspect to mercy, to grace and love. Mostly located in the fact that you don't just receive it, you also got to give it out. And really one of the things that the Spirit was teaching me as I was reading this is that God's grace does have really... Is terrible the right word? It has implications for us that are, that are sometimes frightening. To the same level that he has blessed us, people who, us, people who by nature are his enemies, he may just ask us to bless our enemies. Have we really understood grace and mercy if we're only being gracious and merciful to people that we like? This is one of the main things that this chapter teaches us. But how did I get all this? Well, the story, as Christoph told us last week, is about Jonah. And he was a man in a privileged position. He was a, a prophet of God who lived in close contact with the, with the monarchy. He had, he had the ear of the king, you know. And at the time, Israel was a kingdom that was getting bigger, so it was on the up, it was successful, and he's in the center of it. 
And then out of nowhere, God asked him to go to one of the biggest cities belonging to the enemies of Israel and warn them that their evil has become too much for God. This city, Nineveh, I, I can't remember if we talked about it last week, but it was a very, it's a very big city. In fact, it was massive for its time. It was the leading city in the Assyrian Empire. And around the time that Jonah was alive, the Assyrian Empire was either, I'm not sure, it was either the most powerful nation in the region, or it already was. It was on, it's on its way, or it was already was. Um, but either way, this city in Nineveh, right, is a, it's a big deal kind of a city. It's like a, a London, or a Tokyo, or a, a New York. You know, it, it held a lot of sway, um, a lot of power. What happened there influenced all the region around it. And this Assyrian nation was also, at that time anyway, Israel's worst enemy. And in fact, the enemy of everyone that they came across, um, they were known as well for being brutal and their grisly treatment of their enemies. If you read any of the Bible that talks about them, you see examples of this. There's one uh, king, Manasseh of Judah, the Assyrians capture him and they're taken away. Instead of locking him up in chains, they put a big hook through his nose, pull him home. So, you know, they're not exactly known for their, uh, for their gentleness. And it's no wonder God is angry at their sins because if you read any of the rest of the stories about them, they are indeed a nation of wickedness, right? And so God asked Jonah to go and preach to these people. But instead of doing that, he runs away. Now later on, it becomes obvious that he's got no, Jonah don't have no love for the people of Nineveh. And in fact, he says that the reason he ran off is because he knew that God was gracious. And he knew that God, instead of destroying them like they deserved, would relent and let them off. And Jonah's not into that. He wants them executed, every last one of them. But Jonah's not going to get what he wants. And instead, he knows that basically he's going to be a conduit of God's blessing to these people that he hated. Now, why, why does he hate them? Why does he not like them? It's not made explicitly obvious. But we can guess it may be as simple as the fact that he's been racist. He's a citizen of the kingdom of Israel. These people are the enemies of that country. And for that reason, he hates them. And going to preach a message where he knows will end in blessing to people he hates is not something that he's prepared to do. Or it could be as simple as the fact that he likes to be liked. You know, there's a very good chance that if he's seen to go and preach to the enemies of his country, that will not be appreciated back home. And I've heard lots of stories, since we've, we've come up here, I've heard lots of stories of during the Troubles, of people who would cross the divide to do whatever good deeds they would do. And when they go home, um, and the word got out that they had done this, they were hated. And some people paid with violence, and some people even paid with their lives. But it might not be that. It may just be simple self-righteousness that makes him not go. He knows these people in Nineveh are wicked. He knows what they're like. But the problem is that when God moves in a direction that indicates that he's going to bless these people who Jonah thinks are sinners, self-righteous people, well, we can't stand it. 
because that reveals God's grace to us is not based on our performance. And so suddenly the very thing that makes us feel self-righteous is undercut by God. Did you see what I did there? No. So he's feeling he's self-righteous because, or he doesn't like it because he is kind of self-righteous because if God is going to be gracious to sinners, then clearly God's basis of being gracious gracious to sinners is not on what they do. It's a free offer. So if it's a free offer, then this guy has no right thinking he's righteous because God's love for him isn't based on what he does. Is that better? Good. Whatever the motivation for Jonah going in the opposite direction, its roots are in his displeasure with or the inability to deal with or trust in God's grace towards these people. And in each of these possibilities, God's grace towards these sinners puts him in a very awkward position. And so he leaves. He clears off for this place called Tarshish. You've got to be careful how I say that. The scholars are not exactly sure where this place is. There's a couple of possibilities. It could be on the coast of Spain. It could be Sardinia, you know, the island between France and Italy. Or it could be in Tunisia. But wherever, what's come to all of them is that they are far, far, far away from Israel. And in fact, it's in the complete opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh was inland on the east, and Tarshish was over the ocean on the west. If you wanted to get away from Nineveh and get away as far as you possibly could, then this was the place you'd go to. Now, the thing is, um, from what I've read, most people take his choice to this place as indicative of what I've just said. That is, he went there because he wanted to get away as far as possible. But the text doesn't actually say out exactly why he went there. I've no doubt that the fact that it's furthest one could, the furthest one could get away played a part in his decision to go there, but I don't think that it's only the remoteness of the location of the place relative to where he was that drives his decision. Because experience would say that when you want to escape God, most people decide to get very busy. Have you noticed this? So I think he chose the furthest place, not just because it was the furthest place away from Nineveh, but also because undertaking such a long journey would have kept, forced him to keep his mind on all the things relevant that you do when you're undertaking a journey. And we see that very often in our own lives, right? We know that the Spirit of God is leading us, but we don't want to listen to it. And in those moments, silence, stillness, calmness, they are our enemies. Because within the calm moment, you might have to face up to the thoughts that you don't want to think. It's hard to escape God when you're doing nothing. And in fact, if I may make another point here, it's that if you see someone or yourself are trying to fill your life up with all sorts of events, responsibilities, trips, whatever it is, because you don't want to face up to God, in some ways, actually, that's good because that's an acknowledgement that you still think he is there. You don't want to try to get away from something that's not there. What is harder is to deal with is, is someone who's so full of apathy towards God that they neither talk nor try to get away to him, get away from him. Sorry. At that stage, they're indifferent to his presence, regardless of the circumstances. And that's much harder to deal with, but it's not impossible. 
Because Jonah actually reaches that stage in a little while, and we'll look at that, but I'm jumping ahead. Anyway, Jonah gets on the boat, he pays his fare, and there's a possibility, actually, that uh, the text says he didn't just pay his fare like you would if you were getting on a ferry, but actually he paid for the whole boat, which serves to underscore the sheer desperation that he had to get away from God. And, and one thing we should, we should take from this is, even when we see our friends or our family running from Jesus, even if they are displaying, you know, vile, anti-God characteristics and seem absolutely determined to leave him behind, never give up hope. <laughs> never stop praying for them. Scripture and life is full of too many stories of people who have turned to God even when everything in their life would say that was not going to happen. Anyway, Jonah's on the boat, and at this stage, God begins to put some obstacles in his way, specifically a storm, a big one. And while the rest of the boat is doing everything they can to save their own lives, you know, they're praying, they're trying to lighten the loads by throwing the, off, off the cargo, and you know it's serious then, because that's the point where they're like, you know, they don't care about mo- they're making money anymore, they just want to survive. But during all this, what does Jonah do? He goes down into, in, into the middle of the boat and goes to bed. And we need, I want to be clear here, right? Because the English is a little bit ambiguous. You could read this and think that Jonah was a very good sleeper. And in fact, he'd just been sleeping soundly as the storm had arose and then continued to sleep throughout it. That's not what's happening here. Instead, the author is trying to say that Jonah went down to stairs to go to sleep in response to the saw, seeing the storm. He's not just one of these guys who could sleep through everything. He probably is that too, but the author is not trying to highlight that. What he's trying to say to us is that Jonah is continuing his flight from God. Jonah knows what's going on, but he's not going to deal with it. He still refuses. And even though when there's a chance he could die, he still refuses to face up to God. And meanwhile, the captain can't believe what Jonah's up to, and he says to him, quite ironically, exactly what Jonah should do. He says, get up and call your God. And there's a lesson here too in that, whereas Presbyterians anyway do claim exclusivity for Jesus, we say that there's no salvation in any other God and the doctrines of non-Christian religions in regard to God are incorrect. But that's not to say that God can't use <clears throat> Sorry, the words spoken by people of other religions in our life. And especially in Ireland and Northern Ireland, as they get more multicultural, our temptation, I think, would be to either completely shut out or on the other side, accept uncritically <clears throat> the words of these people. We need to do better than that. Yeah, did you see in the paper, it was in the Belfast Telegraph, <clears throat> that Northern Ireland... <clears throat> I'm sorry... Northern Ireland got its first uh, legally accepted pagan denomination during the week. Didn't we see that? No? It's called the, the Order of the Golden River. Uh, there's, there are head priests up in Newton Abbey somewhere. But um, if that guy moves in next door to you, or he's living next door to you already, right? Just because he's a pagan doesn't mean everything that he says to you about God is a lie. And we're moving into times where it looks like we're going to be a minority, and, and we've got to be gracious as that happens. But if we go down kicking and screaming, 
we are not witnessing to the God who we believe says, trust in me always. The safe way to do it is to check all religious statements by non-Christians against God's word. Don't just accept it. Don't just reject it. Check it. Anyway, Jonah was, however, in no place to receive godly teaching from anybody. He apparently didn't do anything in response to the captain's questions, and the sailors decided to cast lots to find out who's causing them this trouble. Casting lots, by the way, is uh, it's kind of like throwing dice. Everyone gets a number, and whoever's number comes up is the winner, or in this case, the person whose fault it is that the storm is raging. So the lots fall on Jonah, and the sailors go and ask him some questions. They say, <clears throat> who's doing this to us? What do you do? Where are you from? Who are your people? And in response, Jonah, notice, he dodges one question. He doesn't answer the question of what do you do? And of course, he doesn't want to answer that question because if he does so, he'll have to say that he is a prophet. And to do that is to face up again to the very thing that he's trying to run away from him. So he's still running away from God. He's got all these opportunities to come and face him, but no go. And instead he says, Well, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the next verse tells us that at some stage in this conversation, he also indicated to them that he was running away from God, which terrifies them. And rightly so, because in their mind, um, this guy has upset a powerful God, and they don't know how they're going to appease this God. That is, even as they speak, is making the storm worse. So they asked Jonah, what should they do? What are we supposed to do here? And he says, throw me into the sea. And it, this is the point I was talking about earlier. Effectively here, Jonah says, I'm done running away from God. I'm still not going to repent, but I'm done running. He's reached the bottom. And yet... Even there, as we will see, God doesn't abandon him. Meanwhile, the sailors aren't into this idea of throwing him overboard and they try to row harder, but the storm gets worse. So then, and only then, they come to the end of their rope. They've run out of options. They've got no choice but to chance killing Jonah and, they run, the, and run the risk of angering his God. But sure, it looks like they're going to die anyway. So... So they pray to this new God that they've never prayed to before and ask him for mercy for killing Jonah and then they throw him overboard. At which point the seas grow calm, the sailors get down on their knees and worship God and vow to continue to do so. And meanwhile, below the surface of the water, Jonah is sitting in the belly of the fish. Now, let me say a few things here about all of that. Firstly, I'm not interested in arguments about the fish and the possibility of this happening. I'm not interested in arguments about this, the fish and the possibility of whether or not this happened um, as it's laid out here. I think it's fair to say that this is a miracle, if it is anything at all. And if you question this, well, you end up questioning all miracles... And that is a much bigger discussion that I'm not going to get into. But suffice to say, uh, 
believing in miracles is an integral part of being a Christian, seeing as, firstly, I think everything was made from nothing, and secondly, I follow a God who became a man, then died and came back to life. So if you, if you want to talk about miracles, let's talk about those ones. Secondly, um, don't miss the fact that the sailors got converted and did so on the back of a man who talks to them about God at a point in his life where he is as low in his relationship with God as is possible. And yet God uses those words. The point here is that we don't have to, it's not that we don't have to think through how we evangelize. I, I'm not one for doing that. And sure, God will use whatever words we use in whatever way we say them. But rather, if you were ever asked by somebody about something to do with God, give them an answer, no matter how you feel. Because it's not based on how you're doing at the moment. Lastly then, as I think I've made clear, I think I've made clear, it's not, it's no, it's not purely an act of selfless sacrifice that has Jonah offering himself to be thrown off the boat. Some of the books I read about this passage think that Jonah is being honourable here. And he is to a degree, I think. He's certainly considering the lives of uh, the men in his decision to tell them to throw him overboard. But really, this is just still an extension of his desire to escape God. Jonah has now gotten to the point where he would rather die than repent. He could have gotten down on his knees. He could have said, Lord, I'm sorry. I'll go right now. Please have mercy on me. Don't hold these men guilty for my actions. You're right. I'll go to Nineveh. I'll turn the boat around. But he doesn't. And instead, he prefers to have his life ended rather than do the one thing that he's been trying to avoid for the whole chapter. But even then, God doesn't abandon his man. Right there, at the blackest, coldest moment in his walk, the furthest he has ever allowed himself to go away from God, God's right there with him. And the most, the most ironic thing about this whole story is played out at this very moment. He's been trying to avoid the consequences of God's grace in his life for the whole journey. And yet here, as he sinks beneath the waves... It's God's grace that saves him. And you know, <clears throat> I was talking with Erica about this um, last night. And she was saying how there's no difference between us and Jonah, you know. He was running away from God because he didn't want to love his enemies. But even if the thing at hand in our life isn't as dramatic as, you know, going into the city of your enemies and preaching to them, we still run away from the voice of, of God. The heart disposition behind Jonah's actions and our own um, are the same. We, we often, we just don't want to listen to God. We know that he wants us to love people that we don't want to love. We know often what it is that he wants us to do. And we know what, often what it is he, he, he wants us to say. Or that he, what he will say, sorry, when we go back to him. But we don't want to go back to him. We're kind of like Jonah. We believe that it's better to wallow. It's better to ignore him. It's better to keep distance between you and 
whatever person it is that you don't like. It's better to love only those from your country or your county or your street or your half of the city or only those who deserve it. I, um, <clears throat> but it's not true. I remember one time, I, I can't remember what had me so worked up, to be honest with you. I was trying to remember it, but it was probably something silly. But I was in a very bad mood, anyway, for about a week. And I hadn't been praying or paying attention at church or reading my Bible or anything like that. And I was drifting a little bit. And it came up in conversation with Erica, and uh, she made me pray. She made me pray. Um, And I prayed for about two minutes. And I I wasn't even making coherent sentences, actually. I was just... I apologize, but I was just swearing profusely at God for about for who He was for about two minutes, and um, and after two minutes, when it was all out, I was thanking Him and asking for for forgiveness because of who He was. So I went into it angry because of who He was, and I came out resolved with Him because of who He was. It was just two minutes. That's all it took. And I was probably in a bad mood for about a week. When you think of it, it's kind of weird. But anyway, the last thing to say is this. Jesus, Jesus sorry, references Jonah, Jonah's time in the belly of the fish, as a way of referring to his death in the cross. He does it twice, I think. And because the point of the fish is not, wow, what an amazing miracle, the point of the fish story is that God saved Jonah from death. The cross is how we know that even in the absolute darkest moments of our life, God is there with us. The cross is how we know we can be certain that God will never give up coming after us, or our friends, or our family members, who were once close, but are now distant from God. How does it do that? Very simply. If he was willing to die for us, to claim us for himself, then he's willing to go to distance again to claim us again. And if he can conquer death, no challenge is too big for him. Behind most of our problems with loving others who we don't want to love is a failure to appreciate how much God loves us. This week, I'll leave it at this. This week, pray two things. Ask God to show you afresh, or for the first time, the value of the cross in your life. And if there's anyone in your life that you know he wants you to love better, or at all, and you can't, ask him for the grace to at least begin to move towards loving them. That's it.